What's up, friends of the room, friends of Fort Worth in Scottsdale, Arizona, Houston, Texas, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Southwest, Southwest Minnesota, Northwest Arkansas, anybody joining us online. We are continuing this series on the book of James. I'm going to read the passage. We're going to be in James chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, you can flip open to James chapter 4, starting verse 10. And we are going to continue this series where we have been going week by week, verse by verse, through the book of James. So he says, starting verse 10, if not, if you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screens. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another or speak evil against one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against God's law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and destroy. It's God. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Tonight, we're going to talk about the topic of pride. And when you read that passage, you may go, wait, wait, connect the dots on how it's pride. Well, he brings up and describes the posture, James, the half-brother of Jesus, of somebody who lives a life that is not marked by humility, where he starts out of humbling. And he says at the end, there's an arrogance that marks them and how they see their life and how they interact with people, how they think about their plans, how they make decisions and their actions. Pride is one of those things that candidly can be hard because it's difficult to see in the mirror. It's an easy thing often to see in the life of somebody else, but it can be hard for us to see it in ourselves. This past week, I was at my son's. It was Thursday night. My son had a t-ball game. We're at the t-ball game. It's like the greatest thing ever to go to your son's t-ball game. We're having a blast. He's up there. They're learning how to hit. He's up to bat and I'm holding my daughter at the time and she is like kind of fidgety, kind of squirming, uh, just like doing barrel rolls while I'm trying to hold her and I'm trying to film my son who's going up to the tee and, you know, go get him slugger. And she continues to move. I can just tell she's kind of uncomfortable and I'm thinking, man, it's because it's about to be past her bedtime. It's hot out here. Of course she's uncomfortable, but hey, just settle in. I'm trying to capture some video. As I'm doing that, I hear this <coughs> and this audible, oh gosh, from the people sitting right behind me as my daughter just all over my shoulder. And I pull her back to go, oh no, what's happening? And she unloads a dumpster of vomit 
unlike anything I've ever seen. I hope you're not eating and I'm not trying to make you sick right now, but it was shocking. I mean, I, the amount, I didn't, I've never seen that much come out of a human, let alone somebody who's this tall, and it just continued. And there were chunks all over me from my neck to my knees, to the point where the entire bleachers at the game, it goes from like, go Billy, you got this too. Oh, oh, whoa. People are pouring, they're running over with water bottles, trying to pour them on me literally to get the chunks that are off. I mean, it, it, whatever you're thinking, worse. <laughs> a guy, a total stranger, I don't even know who it is still, came up and was like, here, you can have my shirt. <laughs> That's a true story. I, 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 I took a picture of it, but it's not really worth showing, but a, a random stranger that I have your shirt. So if you're out there, thank you, Good Samaritan or angel. And, uh, and it was just one of those like, oh man. And in the moment I, I was like, no, I'm, I'm good. I don't need your shirt. And it was like, no, you need this shirt. <laughs> but I'm sitting there and as I was thinking about just this idea, I mean, it was very noticeable. Hey, I needed to change that shirt. I needed something else. Like it was not okay for me to just go back and I'm just going to sit down and everything will be okay. And we'll just, you know, pat up and play here that I was covered in something that was so disgusting, whether or not I wanted to change shirt or get rid of it or, or uh, do anything about it, it was clear to everyone around me, this is not okay, and it's disgusting. What does that have to do with pride? Nothing. I just needed to tell somebody about what happened this past week, no. <laughs> in the same way, and not in, honestly, even a, a joking way, pride is one of those things that is covering so many people. And you can look on, and in a very similar way, you see it, and pride is one of those things where it's just, there's something repelling about it. It's disgusting. Some of us came into the room, and, and your life, your actions, your words, the way that you think, is covered in pride. Pride is one of those things that can be incredibly disruptive. It's not just disgusting, where other people are like, man, that is just, I'm repelled by that. It also is destructive, and that pride erodes relationships. It's impossible to have a relationship with someone who will never say, like, you know what? I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? It's impossible to have a relationship with someone who's prideful because they're so obsessed with themselves and how everybody else didn't do everything for them and that person. It's difficult to be in a dating relationship with someone who's so prideful they're always right and you're always wrong. And pride can also not just look like hey, a confident arrogance over the top. It can also look like a person who's self-obsessed in an insecure way. I'm so consumed with how I'm terrible and I'm a terrible person. That same self-centered focus exists there. Whether it's the outlandish pride, arrogance, or it's the pride of just I'm not worthy of anything. Both of those can be examples of pride. A pride is one of those things that can be repelling, it can be destructive to relationships, and it can, is the thing that will keep people from having a relationship with God, from spending eternity with God, because they're not able to say, God, I'll never be good enough to have a relationship with you. No matter how hard I try, church, uh, number of times I attend church, Bible verses I've read, I'll never earn a relationship with you, which is what Christianity believes, but it does believe you can accept it by accepting the free gift that was offered to you and me on the cross. And James today is gonna go through and help us see those blind spots of pride and where pride may manifest in our life and help give clarity to here's some ways this is manifesting in your life 
We say around here that humility looks good on everyone. Humility is the little black dress that looks good every time. And in the same way, pride is one of those things that just looks disgusting on everyone. So here's what I know. Let me promise you something. Guy or girl, if you walked into the room tonight and you want to leave more attractive tonight, if you will begin to put on humility, you will be more attractive. You got hit with the ugly stick when you were growing up, whatever happened, you will leave here more attractive no matter what you look. Whatever girl out there is going to find you more attractive, whatever guy out there will find you more attractive if you put on humility. And if you don't, and you allow pride to cover you, it is a repelling, disgusting thing and a destructive thing, as we're going to see. So we're going to walk through in verse 10, and we're going to go through. Uh, we've been in this series, the book of James. James is written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, which is astounding to me. I never get over that. The guy who grew up, Jesus had a younger brother, half-brother. And he grew up, and he lived in the same house with Jesus. He learned all the teachings from Jesus. He wasn't always a believer. For years and years, he wasn't. And then he saw his brother die on the cross and come back alive, and James became a believer in Jesus. But James saw Jesus all throughout the stages of growing up. And he learned the teachings that he writes down in the earliest book in the New Testament called the book of James. And tonight we're going to walk through what he says is the posture of someone who's proud and the humility that is to mark followers of Jesus. So we're going to look at three things where you might struggle with pride if your life is marked by these three things. We're going to look at three things that you might struggle with pride if you and your life is marked by these things. I'm going to start with the first one. Read it again. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not speak evil of one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them. And he speaks against God's law. In other words, he doesn't look at God's law, what God says about people, their neighbor, other believers, people in life. He says, I don't care what God thinks about them. Here's what I think about them. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it. You're sitting in judgment on the law. In other words, you think you're better than God. There's only one lawgiver and judge, and it's not you, and it's not me. It's the one who's able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So James brings up this idea of speaking evil, speaking bad about, speaking in a condemning way towards other people. Whether it's directly to them or whether it's behind their back, your translation may have the word slander, it may have speak evil, but it's just the idea of, hey, I am going to place and speak and put judgment on this person. They're not a good person because of X. And James said, first way you know you might struggle with pride is if you put people down. This is the type of person that considers people classifies, and we all do this to some degree, where you think of people, and we can all think of people where it's like, man, you're a worse person than I am because of blank. Because of the sin struggle that you have or the past that you have, you're a worse or not as good of a person as I. And James says that mentality, that line of thinking where you put people down, where you judge them because of the job they have, the life that they've lived, the actions they've had, is a condemning, prideful, putting yourself in the position of God, who is the only one who's able to rightly judge other people. Again, he's speaking about a condemning judgment of people in your life. It can look like, man, I think less of you because, honestly, this happens in dating all the time, where it's like, man, this girl's damaged goods, can't believe that, which is not the response of a godly man. In other words, I talk to girls all the time, they get a part of a past, or guys all the time, they have a past, and they're like, man, you you talk about godly people up on there on the stage, and I'm telling you, they're not looking for someone like me because I got a, a history 
of regret, dysfunctional relationships, sexual past. Let me be abundantly clear. A godly guy is like Jesus, which means he doesn't hold sins of your past against you. Sins, if you're not actively following and pursuing Jesus, those are concerns that he should rightly have. But if you're someone who's like, man, I've surrendered, I've gone all in with Jesus, if a godly guy doesn't see you like Jesus sees you, which is I don't define you by your past, he's not a godly guy or a godly girl. But a person who speaks judgment and condemns based on the behavior or thinks that I'm better with someone is the person James is talking about. I mean, this candidly happens so often with Christians and it's so tragic where there's not a posture of like, I'm gonna extend the benefit of the doubt to you or a humility to go, man, if I was in your shoes, I bet I would struggle with the same thing. This can happen with like same-sex attraction where we can categorize these different sins that God doesn't categorize. Where if you struggle with that, man, that's just, oh, I don't know what to even do with that. You have no idea what it's like to live in the life in the shoes of somebody else. None of us do. The number of people who I've met with down here at the front by the stage that have had sexual abuse in their past and that trickled into their life and began to have ripple effects in every direction. And since that day, they've struggled with same-sex attraction. They've struggled with some sort of identity thing or identity issue. And for you to look at somebody and say, man, I cannot believe that you do X. And I'm not saying celebration or embracing sin at all. I'm saying the way that we think about, we talk to people, we put people down. James would say, it is pride. I was talking to a counselor one time and I was talking about, honestly, pride in my own life of, of people that I was like, man, just this type of person that I'll leave out to work with or people that are in my life that just kind of annoy me. And I was listing out some of the characteristics and I don't even know what to do with that. And he said, The proper response to someone who has those behavioral characteristics, if it's like Jesus, should be compassion. And I was like, yeah, I know. I need to grow in that. And he said, the way you grow in that is by being gripped by grace. He said, all those annoying characteristics or behavior things and all the different things that different people in your life annoy you about, whether you're like, I can't believe that they would do that or or that we're prone to look down on, and I can't believe that she is X. I can't believe that he's this way. I can't believe blah, blah. Reflect the fact that I have forgotten the tail line that but for God's grace, I would be that same way. But for God moving inside of my life, there's no reason that I wouldn't have the same struggles or same challenges or same behavioral problems that other people have, and the only reason I don't is because of God's grace, Period. He said, the more you can get gripped in that, the more that you, rather than being annoyed or repulsed, you feel compassion and patience and love and thankfulness to God. Because there's nothing in your life that is good that I can take responsibility for or credit for. First Corinthians 4 says this exact idea where it says, hey, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? The Paul would say, Everything in your life, everything that you think is great and awesome, it's because I really worked hard, all of that was a gift. You can't take credit for the family you were born in. If you worked really hard and you got through college and you made it into grad school or an Ivy League school, you don't have credit for that. You'd be like, no, dude, I worked really hard. Who gave you the strength to work really hard? Who gave you the mind to work through and take exams and to do tests? There's no reason why you would have been given those types of opportunities. You can't take credit over your sexual history or sexual past. 
Because maybe you're like, dude, I've dated, I've done everything right. You can't take credit for that. Who placed in your life people that were a source of protection? Maybe a father that came along and he was like, hey, sex is for marriage. You're going to want to save this one. Who was the person who provided a healthy family that some of you guys come from? And when you think of it, you're like, man, people should just try harder. You can't take credit for so many of the different things. The job that you have today, it's all a gift from a God who allowed you to, in an interview process, say the right things and have the right credentials to have that. And James is saying the same way, your whole life, you shouldn't have a posture of any part of you that thinks I'm better than anyone, but a posture that says anything that I have that is good is from God. And anything that I see in other people's lives should drive me to prayer and patience and not speaking and putting other people down. And he would say, here's how you know you struggle with pride. If you put people down, you put others down with the words that you use. He continues and says another characteristic that second way that you can know you might struggle with pride. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So James brings up plans. Anybody, who's a planner in this room? Like, man, I'm just planning. I got 2023 already on lock. Anybody? Anybody not a planner in here? Okay, and who, where's the planners again? It's like 25 planners. This world is falling apart. Uh, James brings up the subject of planning. I would fall in the category of not loving plans. It's just not my thing, but I am so thankful for planners. Did James just throw shade at anybody who makes plans? No. He throws shade at the posture behind those plans. Young adult years are just by nature, they are a time of a lot of planning, whether it's on a minor scale and you got that calendar, you got triple calendars, or it's on a mega scale of like, here, I'm planning when I'm going to get married, I'm planning the future that I have, I'm envisioning the financial future that I'm going to have and when I'm going to get out of debt and home that I'm going to live in someday, my future, you know influencer status that I'm working on and building my way up to and my Etsy account over here. It's just a time of a lot of planning. James's point is not that plans are bad. He's talking about the posture behind those plans. And he brings up really two problems that are associated with the posture that James says you and I are not to have. So he brings up, you might struggle with pride if you plan like you are in control. How do I know if I have a posture that plans like I'm in control and a posture that James would say is a prideful one. Well, there's two problems that he brings up. The first is planning and living life as though I'm in control, which sets you up for a recipe of eventually discovering that all the plans and everything that I hope and all the things that I think I'm in control eventually are gonna collide with the direction that God's gonna take life that contradicts mine. And that can either lead me to react and trust in, I'm going to lean in, or to repel and move away from God. My four-year-old, uh, five-year-old now, from time to time we'll go down to the school, and um, that's down the block from our house, and we'll drive the golf cart. I have this golf cart that's um, kind of a fixer-up thing that, that we'll drive down there, let him sit on my lap, and it's the greatest thing ever when you're a five-year-old because I'll let him sit and I'll let him drive. And we'll be driving along, and he's turning it, and he's just like, this is the greatest thing ever because he's five. And sometimes we'll be taking 
the trip down there and there's a car that's parked on the street and he will be heading and he thinks it's funny to be like, oh, let's hit the car. And it's like, <laughs> not hitting the car. Daddy can't afford it. And we will be confronted with the fact that he thinks he's in control and he wants to go right and his dad will take him left or he doesn't know how to get home and so he'll go right and dad will take him left in order to get us home. God has a relationship with us. We're like a father. We're invited to sit on the lap of God and walk along and there will feel times like he gives us decisions and options and you get to decide so much, not everything, but often your life and the decisions that you're making and there will still come times or all the plans and things, that I, this is with the future that I saw coming. And you'll think we're going right and God will take a left. You think that relationship, that was a healthy relationship. They were a godly person. Maybe you met them at church and you thought they were the one. And for whatever reason, God said, no, I've got someone else. The job that you thought like, man, just this was it. And I feel like I've been stuck at the same position for three years. When am I ever going to get the promotion? And that moment comes and you think it's coming and it doesn't. The grad school that you applied into that you were so hoping, like, if I don't get into this one, I'm going to have to move cities. And you didn't get in. And in those moments when you're trying to go right and you see God's plan is clearly going left, the choice before all of us is to go, man, there's a God who's in control. I can trust him. I can lean in. If he's taken that direction, even though I didn't want to go that direction, I can trust him. Or I can do what a five-year-old does, which is freak out and cry and be like, God, where are you? And you don't care about me. And I'm not trying to invalidate any of the pain and challenges because it is terrible to break up with the person that you thought you were going to move forward. It is heartbreaking to not get the promotion or to feel like you're stuck. But James would say, you live in a world where you've never been in control. And when God goes left and you wanted to go right, you can either trust him or you can allow the fact that it's not going the way that you hoped it to, to push you away from God. And he would say, hold on, you can trust him. We'll talk about more of that in a second. The second problem of the person who plans and the posture that James would say, this is the type of planning that is really destructive, is that their plans are all about themselves. They're not about what God has, about God's will. And he describes a person who's a go-getter. Hey, this person comes up, says, today, tomorrow, we're going to the city, we're gonna make a profit, I'm gonna start this business, and it's gonna be amazing. And their whole pursuit is all about their own purposes, their own plans. At the focal point of their plans is it's all about me, what I want, when I want it. And James says, this is the type of person whose end goal is their own satisfaction, their own happiness, making more money in life, that when they think about, hey, I think I should marry her because blank. In that blank is not because God described the characteristics that I should look for in a wife and she has them. It is because she's hot. And I'm all free, man, I hope you marry the hottest girl around. The beautiful ladies around, you should ask them out. But the point is, James is saying, they live a life where how they think, how they act, is not operated on like, this is what God says I should do, but what they want to do. Where they want to, hey, I, th- I think I should change jobs, not because God may be calling me and I could live more on mission by taking that job. They think I should change jobs because I, at the end of the day, it'll just allow me to make more money. And the focal point of how they decide, how they make plans is themselves. If the end goal for you is to make money, you have a miserable 
destination ahead. And you're going to spend your life that James is about to describe why it's a miserable destination ahead. And you're going to waste it. Here's why. You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. The tragic thing for so many people inside of our country and in our world and for years, I mean, so many guys have parents that did this. They gave themselves to the world and everything that the world says to offer of, hey, the goal in life is to make as much money as possible, to drive the G-Wagon, to get the Tesla someday, get the biggest house that you can, and you're successful. And they've succeeded at everything the world says is important and failed at everything the Bible says actually matters. And you can spend the rest of your life either giving your life to collecting little pieces of paper with dead presidents on it. That's what money is. Or you can give your life to the only kingdom that actually matters. And James would say, your life is like a vapor. You're really going to spend it building up your own kingdom and your own life. And if you do, you are wasting it. Or you can live your life and live for the will and the plans of the one who's in control, the one who created you, who created you for a purpose far greater than a paper collection. But for him and knowing him and making him known. I love the imagery that he uses. Because James, he puts it in a perspective and he answers the question where, what is life? And he answers it in several different ways where he says, man, first thing, life is brief. It's like a vapor. What is a vapor? Vapor. That's what James describes as your life. He's like, oh, 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 you're gone. Boom, oh. It's like, oh, birth, elementary school, college. Oh, oh, no. Uh, uh, high school, college. We got retired, married, married, lots of, uh, no, okay. <laughs> and he says, it's here and gone. The Bible uses that illustration. Sorry, man, that's hairspray all over you guys down there. Over and over, this, this is the imagery that God uses. And James says, you need to know. You have no idea what's ahead of tomorrow. You're not promised anything. Who are you going to live your life for? Let me ask a question. Who would consider themselves young in here? There's like four people over 50 that are like, oh, no, they found us. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. Totally kidding. All right, I'm getting an email for that. Um, here's the thing. I mean, I, I'm sure all of us would. You're like, hey, it's a young adult. Is this a trick question? It's a young adult ministry? Well, yeah, being young is kind of a relative thing. In, in other words, like when you're 14, a 28-year-old is like, oh, you're so old. When you're 28, uh, you know, a 40-year-old is like, man, you're old. When you're 40 or when you're 80, a 40-year-old is young. It's kind of, there's relativity to it. But it's not just that. Young being like, man, I'm early on in life is a relative thing based on when the end is. In other words, if you're 30 and you're going to die at 32, you're in the later part of your life. You're near the end. You're a lot farther along than the person who's 40 who's going to die at 80, who's just halfway. Who knows the end date? God. And James is saying, you don't know what, you're, you think you're young, you think you're invincible, which, let's be honest, all of us do. You don't know what anything holds. 
You don't know when God's calling you home. How much longer are you going to live for yourself and go, someday, someday I'll get serious about God. You know, whenever I get, meet the person and we get the one, then I'll get serious about God. And then I'll start going back to church and trying to get things back in order. But right now, I'm just trying to enjoy my 20s, trying to live my life. He says, you don't know if you'll have any more 20s. You don't know how long your life will be. You don't know how many more days that you have. And you're going to spend that little vapor that you have and another moment of that vapor on yourself and waste it? Or are you going to give it to the only kingdom that matters? And surrender your life and use the gifts and the talents and treasures that the world around you wants to take and take advantage of to make money and to make rich people richer and to collect more papers with green or more green pieces of paper with dead presidents on it. And God is saying, all of that is like a vapor. Don't be a fool. You don't know what tomorrow has. You don't know what's ahead for you. You know the one who holds tomorrow and you can either live for him or you can waste it. James is saying, when it comes to your life, the person who makes plans or who lives as though they're in control is a fool. And finally, concludes by laying out what you prioritize. He says this in verse 15. You ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, for them it is sin. So he brings up the third idea, which is you might struggle with pride if you are the priority. If your priorities are your priority, would be another way of saying it. But it brings up, and he brings a verse that just kind of feels random when you read it, but when you think about it, it makes sense. He says, if anyone knows the good that they ought to do today, and they don't do it. It's sin. Why would someone know the good, know what they ought to do, know that God is calling them to some decision, some action to take, some relationship to break off, some conversation to have with a parent, something they're supposed to do at work, something they're supposed to confess to their community. Why would someone do it? Or why would someone decide, I know what I'm supposed to do, I'm not doing it? Well, it's probably a question you haven't thought about before, but it's a pretty simple answer. They don't want to. Clearly know I'm supposed to, not gonna do that. And James says that you might know that you're prideful if you and your priorities are your priority. Your life, your decisions, you live according to what you prioritize, not what God prioritizes, but what you prioritize. Your priorities, you, and what, doing what you want as it relates to dating, working, giving, spending, living. Let me ask a really important question. When is the last time you did something? Listen to me. When's the last time that you did something you did not want to do, but you did because God said to. Or a time where you wanted to do something, but you didn't do it because God said not to. Might I suggest if you can't think of a time in your life where you're like, man, I'm just, I didn't want to do that, but it's what God says. It's just what I'm going to do. Your God is not the God who's there. It's you. 
It's the Bible over and over says there's going to be times where, man, God says this is what they do. And people who worship him as God and are surrendered to him, they say, man, you drive the car. You're in control. Is there a time where you can think of, like, man, I was at work. I didn't want to have this conversation about Jesus because it's just awkward and I don't know how I'm going to get there. But I said, coworker, and I just felt like I was supposed to, and I did it. Is there a time that you can think of where maybe you're like, man, I just I feel like I'm so busy right now. I don't have time to get plugged into a church. I, I don't know that there even is a church that I'm totally set on. And I don't know if I want to, but I did it because God says to. Hebrews chapter 13, he says, submit to elders that you and I are to be a part of a local church and members. Can you think of times, moments in your life where despite the fact that you didn't want to, you did, or that you did want to, you didn't because God said to. If you can't, that's confusing. And if you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, that makes total sense. But if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, and there aren't any times where you can go like, man, this is what I wanted, but it wasn't what God said to do. Maybe it's in a dating relationship where you're like, you know, everything inside of me is like, woo, want to push this forward, and man, this girl, woo, man. And my Bible's telling me no, but my body's telling me. And uh, what, if I, what if I just go? I'm like, tell me. Uh. It's like becomes a concert. I'm like, pastor? Uh, uh, man, I lost my total train of thought. Um, where everything inside of you was like, mm, man, I, oof. But the Bible has made it very clear, God does not want this. If you're not living out that tension, I don't know that you're following Jesus. Because all the time, Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, pick up your cross, whoever wants to be my disciple. And he uses an execution analogy. Must pick up the gas chamber. Must pick up their cross and die daily. And follow me. And James says, man, if the priority, if your life is marked by doing your priorities, God is not your priority. And you might know you struggle with pride if you are your priority. James is saying over and over in this book that this new relationship that these new Christians have should impact everything. As I was thinking about it this week, it's it's like relational proximity should determine Priority. In other words, we're talking about priority and living God's priorities, come as a Christian. This new relationship that I have with God and with Jesus should impact and mark how I live all of my life. When it comes to relationships, every relationship you have impacts your life. But the closer your relationship is, the more it impacts your life. Another way of saying it is the closer, the more proximity a relationship has, the more priority it has in how you decide, how you live, more impact it has. An example, my wife, we got married, been married eight and a half years, and that relationship is incredibly close, closest one I have on earth. That proximity determines priority. Because she's my wife and has incredible proximity, it determines the priority and way that I act and way that I think of and way that I act on her behalf or for her. In other words, when it comes to her birthday, that proximity leads to priority. So we have birthday. We have birthday not just day, we got birthday week because that's how she rolls, and we celebrate because this proximity determines priority. I have a relationship with my barista. 
don't know her that well, go in, get a cup of coffee, head on my way. Hey, thanks for being here. There's a relationship, but the proximity is far greater. So when it comes to her birthday, I, I don't even know what it is. I would say happy birthday if I saw her, but there's not a proximity that determines priority. If in your life, God is not a priority and God's priorities are not your priorities, they're not even on your radar, might I suggest there's not proximity. Closeness, it's there. And God's not angry at you. He's in love with you. He gave his life on the cross for you. He died for you. He wants you to experience life more than you do. He wants a better future for you than you do. But without proximity, of course it will not be a priority. And James says, this new relationship with God, it should impact all the ways that you think, the way that you plan. Hey, this is, this is what I'm hoping to do in 2021, God. But is that what you would have me do? As I think through who I'm going to live and how I'm going to date and even this person, like, is this who God would have me date? If I'm thinking about changing jobs, am I even considering, is this what God would want? Or am I just directing and driving my life, giving him updates every now and then? He's basically a 911 call that he's not really involved. He's like the 911 police or firefighter that, hey, you don't call me, I'll call you when I need you. The Bible says that's not a relationship at all. God wants a relationship, a relationship that the more you and I walk in proximity, his priorities become our priorities. And priorities that God has for us, they lead to life in every different arena. And James says, it is prideful to think that you know better how to live the vapor of your life. And you and I have a decision every day. Am I going to surrender it and trust him? and rearrange his priority or my priorities with his. Because at the end of the day, God's not saying like, hey, you shouldn't care about anything. He's saying when it comes to what is first, a first priority, seek first my kingdom, my righteousness, everything else will be added. So the application for tonight is to rearrange priorities. I don't know what your priorities, but when it comes to thinking through at work, my priority is to be successful. And dude, I just want to slay. Is that God's priority? God's priority for me is to, be a light. Matthew 5.14 says, I am the light of the world. He places lamps in specific locations to light up. You live in a dark office where nobody else knows Jesus. That's amazing. God put you there. As it relates to your dating relationship, or maybe just life in general, your priority, I want to get married, I want to have seven kids, I want to live in this house, I want to have all these different dreams. Is that God's priority? I don't know. I know that his ultimate priority for all of us is to love him, to know him, to make him known to other people. It's not a bad thing to be married and have seven kids. I hope, hope, hope you do. <laughs> I've, I mean, how to, great, I have seven kids. It's awesome. But is that the priority? No, at the end of the day, it's not ultimate. God says, do not put as first priority anything other than my kingdom. And the good news is, it's Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. You do that, I'm going to take care of the rest. So I was thinking about this week and this message as we conclude. The scriptures, they lay out something that was so sobering to me this week. They talk about life in a way that is hard for my heart and mind to get around. And I don't know that I ever will. But this life is so short. And then eternity, forever and ever and ever and ever. It's like this rope, where this rope represents eternity. The creation of the world, time begins, 
everything created. Thousands of years go by and someone named Jesus entered into the cosmos. The one who created it puts on flesh and skin and he enters into it. And Christians believe, maybe you're not a Christian, this would be helpful for you. This is what the message of Christianity, that God in the form of Jesus came to earth. He lived, no one denies that. He died, no one denies that. But then he rose again. He came back to life and he claimed, and those who followed him closely, like James claimed, anyone who believes in Jesus, accepts Jesus as the payment for their sin on the cross will have eternal life. In other words, they don't put their faith in themselves. If I was to come down or you came down front, we had a conversation and I asked you on a scale of one to 10, how confident are you that you are gonna spend eternity with God? 10 being totally confident. One, not at all confident. And you, this happens every week, this conversation. And people come down, ask that question and like, well, I'm like, I'm like a six. I'm like, awesome, that's six. Why are you a six? Sentence that comes next, almost always the same. Starts with a single word. I, well, I'm trying to get my life in order. I'm, you know, I love being back at church, but I've just done some bad things, and, but I'm trying to get my life together. Or they'll have a nine, and they're like, well, I, I follow God. I've done what he says. I've saved myself from marriage. I know a lot of Bible verses. Both of those answers, incorrect. Christianity teaches that a person can know they have 100% confidence I will spend eternity with God in heaven, not because I, anything, because Jesus, what he did on the cross, paying for my sin, rising from the grave, he paid it. I got one reason, one reason only. No matter how good of a person I think I am, how bad I am, none of that matters. Because the Bible says all of us are worse than we even understand. But if you by faith say, man, I, I received Jesus, you died in my place, and you rose from the grave, you're gonna live forever and ever and ever for all of eternity, for the rest of the rest of the rest. So that happened, and then 2,000 years go by, and then there's you. And in the scope of eternity, because this rope goes on and on and on, it goes way off the stage. It goes on, just imagine, forever and ever and ever. And in that eternity, you've got this short little life of a vapor, and the Bible says that anyone who believes in their short little life of a vapor and what Jesus did on the cross, they're gonna spend all of that eternity with God forever and ever and ever. And not just that, anyone who uses their short little time period where we get so focused, where we think everything in this life is like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I didn't do this and I'm not married yet and I'm so disappointed in this and we get so narrowed in and the Bible has this picture of billions and billions of years where you're gonna spend Eternity with God and anything that you do in this life for God and his kingdom will have ripple effects for the rest of the rest of the rest. There's a famous line that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to get that which he cannot lose. That anything you invest, Jesus says, for my kingdom will be something that for all of eternity and eternity. And anything that you invest for your kingdom will just be an opportunity missed for all of eternity and eternity and eternity. And he says to you, are you, who are you going to live for? Whose kingdom are you going to live for? Are you willing to surrender and come underneath the God and humble yourselves and rearrange those priorities and trust in him in the short time period that he has? I don't know how long God has for you. This week, I talked to a friend. who was in my office, and a coworker came in, and they were like, I got to go to Austin. A friend of mine just passed away. And they rushed down, young 20s. 
way earlier than anybody thought. I hope God gives you many, many years with him and that you fill those many, many years and even if they're 70 or 80 in the glimpse of eternity, they're, they're even smaller than this and that you fill those with walking and trusting in him. And James would say, if you do that, you will have invested it and if not, you will have wasted it. Let me pray. Father, thank you that firsthand you've given us an account from the brother of the Son of God, the half-brother who saw his brother die and come back alive, who experienced change and transformation in his own life when he surrendered his life to him. And I pray for anyone who tonight has never had a moment where they put their faith in Jesus, tonight would be their night and they would trust in him. They would walk with him for all their days. Pray for parts of our heart, God, that are many and my own that are filled with pride or selfishness that you would mercifully expose those areas. Bend my heart more in your direction. Make us more focused on you and your kingdom and would you help us to walk surrendered to walk with you, to not give our lives to something that's so fleeting and the, mo the voice and the messages of the world is so loud. Would you help us? We worship you now in song, amen.